Today on Inside Appalachia, we hear about a woman who entered the male-dominated coal industry. Oh, Lord, my mom threw a fit. (laughs) My dad said, you sure that's what you want to try? I said, yeah, Daddy, it is. We'll also hear how small Appalachian towns are trying to move forward after coal's decline devastated their economies. We closed Walmart. We closed Magic Mart. We closed everything. Y'all have no idea what my people go through. And we hear from one of country music's biggest stars. She recently became host for West Virginia Public Broadcasting's most popular live show, Mountain Stage. 18 wheels and a dozen roses. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Driving on down that whole town road There's a two-hour of a tire's wine Well, it's goodbye to Buckeye and White Sycamore I Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're talking about coal, which has shaped the last 150 years of history in Appalachia. Coal's been in slow decline here for decades, but really accelerated the last 10 years. That's meant hard times for communities that have long relied on it for jobs and taxes. Lawmakers across our country and the world are debating the future of our energy policy. Scientists agree to prevent the worst effects of climate change, we must significantly reduce our carbon emissions, and we've got to do it quickly. For much of the world, the answer is to phase out coal. But the issue's political and complicated. Today, we're going to hear stories about coal here in Appalachia. But first, Kentucky is one of those places that's starting to shift away from coal in a way that West Virginia is not. Curtis Tate is a reporter here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting who covers energy and the environment, and he's been tracking the story. Our producer, Roxy Todd, spoke with Tate about the future of coal in central Appalachia. Curtis, what do we know at this point about where Kentucky and West Virginia are headed? Are we going to continue to produce electricity from coal and for how long? West Virginia is a, a bit more tied to coal at this point than Kentucky is, even even though historically they both produced and consumed a lot of coal. Last year, according to federal data, 69% of Kentucky's electricity came from coal. In West Virginia, it was 88%. That's slightly down from the year before, but there's a, quite a difference. In a sign of what's been happening to the coal industry, uh, state utility regulators in Kentucky and West Virginia came to very different conclusions about the future of one particular coal-burning power plant in West Virginia. That's the Mitchell plant in Marshall County. It's half-owned by Kentucky Power and Wheeling Power. The parent company is American Electric Power. That's who we pay our utility bills to. They had asked regulators in both states to approve a wastewater treatment upgrade at the plant that was required to keep it running beyond 2028. West Virginia approved the project, but Kentucky didn't. And in a similar decision in Virginia, regulators rejected wastewater upgrades for the John Amos and Mountaineer coal plants in West Virginia. So even though these plants supply power to Virginia customers, West Virginia ratepayers us, we're going to uh, have to cover the full cost of the projects. And that basically signals that regulators in these three Appalachian states are thinking differently about how they see coal continuing in the years to come. 
That's right. Kentucky and Virginia seem to be moving away from their coal dependency. Uh, Virginia has a, um, a law requiring sources of clean electricity in the years to come. And uh, West Virginia has basically doubled down on coal. And what about the workers at these plants? About how many people work at the power plants in West Virginia? And are any of their skills transferable to renewable energy or something like that? Well, the, the three plants I mentioned employ about 150 to 200 workers each. It just depends on how much uh, demand there is for power at any given time. They also employ a lot of contract workers, and they support local businesses, convenience stores, lunch counters, gas stations. Uh, in terms of how transferable their skills are, it really depends on what's required um, in, in other sectors. Uh, an electrical engineer or a truck driver could be in, in high demand. It isn't quite as clear what a coal miner would do uh, if there are no opportunities like that somewhere else. They may have to learn a new occupation. And at least so far, efforts to retrain the coal miners to do other kinds of work haven't really succeeded on a large scale. And what's happening in Kentucky? Are any of the power plants there switching to renewable energy? Uh, renewable energy, to some extent, it's actually been more of a, a move toward natural gas. This conversation about transitioning away from coal started happening in Kentucky maybe a decade ago, about where West Virginia is now. It was controversial then, but the state has, has moved away from coal and embraced natural gas. And uh, actually, a number of solar farms have been built in Kentucky since then. West Virginia's trying to hold on to its coal plants, but more are set to retire in Kentucky in years to come. And as each year passes, you'll see coal share of electric power generation continue to shrink. So it, it's it's far from clear that, that even the plants in West Virginia will continue to operate well into the future. The economics are changing, and they're going to catch up with West Virginia eventually. And what do you see happening in Washington that might affect Appalachia's coal industry in the years ahead? Well, there's a lot of moving parts in Washington. The Biden administration wants the electric power sector to go carbon-free by 2035. That's a way more ambitious goal than the utilities have set. And uh, he has a tool for it. He can regulate carbon emissions through the Clean Air Act. Uh, it's complicated. West Virginia and 18 other states have gone to the Supreme Court to challenge the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate carbon emissions from power plants. The justices took the case, and they'll decide by next June. So either the White House will have to write its regulations in a way that won't run afoul of the Supreme Court or hope that the justices uphold the agency's regulatory power. And this has been going on for a while. The Obama administration tried to do this through the Clean Power Plan, but it got caught up in all kinds of legal maneuvers. Now, in Congress, West Virginia has two senators with a lot of influence over any legislative attempts to regulate carbon. Joe Manchin, of course, is the chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Shelley Moore Capito is the senior Republican on the Environment and Public Works Committee, and she'd become the chair if the Republicans win a Senate majority next fall. Both senators have pushed back against the Biden administration's attempt to regulate carbon emissions. You know, basically, they're, they're kind of looking out for West Virginia's coal industry. You know, in the most recent example, Senator Manchin announced his opposition to the Build Back Better Act. The Build Back Better Act had a lot of climate provisions in it that would have encouraged a turn away from fossil fuels. So, you know, and as you know, the uh, the Senate is, is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. They can't afford to lose his vote. So they're going to have to do something to make their climate ambitions more palatable to him, or they'll just have to win more seats. 
Well, a lot of moving parts, as you said, that I am sure you'll be continuing to follow. Curtis Tate is energy and environment reporter here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Curtis, thanks so much for talking with us and for your reporting. You bet. Anytime. There are 66% fewer jobs in West Virginia coal mining today than there were 50 years ago. And experts don't predict a comeback. But we're not alone. Other places around the world face similar dilemmas. Roxy Todd spoke with some of the people who live in those places to find out where we may be headed. Her story begins in Germany 50 years ago, when coal executives and political leaders had to make tough decisions when it came to the future of coal and their home. West Germany emerged from World War II as one of the leading coal and steel producers in the world. Here's a group of German coal miners singing a song about the rise of the coal industry. Then, in the 1960s, oil emerged as a competitor in the energy market, and the country found itself in the midst of an economic crisis. The emergency prompted a strange and unusual alliance. The state government, the regional governments, the trade unions and the employers, the industrialists, sat together and tried to find solutions to the problem. This is Stefan Moitra, historian at the Mining Museum of the Ruhr region in West Germany, a densely populated valley that's home to five million people. On the one hand, he says the coal employers were motivated to cooperate by their revenue losses. On the other hand, it was in the interest of obviously the workers, but also of the state, to have one of the major industrial regions not falling into, you know, into the darkness. <laughs> so this coalition of stakeholders eventually settled on a surprising idea. They actually decided to shrink the coal industry. They merged all the coal and steel companies into one corporation. And the government poured lots of money into helping coal miners retire early. They also invested in emerging industries like tech, auto manufacturing, and tourism to diversify the area's economy. And they built universities, says Moitra. Until the 1960s, there was no major university in the Ruhr. Today, the universities in the Ruhr are one of the major employers. It wasn't easy, but West Germany survived the contraction of coal and steel jobs. Then in the 90s, the coal industry that was left declined even worse. And once again, the coal companies, the government, and the unions sat down and worked out a plan to completely phase out of coal mining by 2018. Sure enough, three years ago, the last mine in the Ruhr region closed. The curtain has fallen on coal mining, and 15,000 locals have turned out to give it a fitting send-off. There's plenty of melancholy in the air as traditional clubs, miners' choirs, pitmen, mine rescue teams, and foremen march by. It wasn't a perfect solution. The Ruhr area has still faced high unemployment at times. But the earlier transition efforts in the 60s made this latest shift much easier. Meanwhile, here in West Virginia... We've closed Walmart. We've closed Magic Mart. We've closed everything. Y'all have no idea what my people go through. That's West Virginia State Delegate Ed Evans, a Democrat from McDowell County. In the 1950s, it was booming, fueled by coal jobs. Now it's filled with ghost towns and ranks as one of the poorest in the country. This year, Evans pleaded with his colleagues on the House floor to plan for a transition away from coal. I've asked for help many times on this floor. 
What have I got? Failing to plan is planning to fail. That day, Evans urged fellow lawmakers to invest a chunk of the state's federal COVID-19 aid into helping coal communities plan for an economic comeback. His request was denied. Politics here in the United States are pretty different than in Europe. And when people talk about economic diversification in coal country, there isn't a clear path forward. Should such a transition be funded by the federal or state government or by private investment? One way we can think about all this is by looking to our neighbors in the north. In Pittsburgh, the collapse of the steel industry in the 1980s prompted existing businesses to retool for a new reality. But it took decades, says historian Alan Dietrich Ward. When you have a small number of very large corporations that really control your economic destiny, it can be very difficult to make economic transitions away from the industries that those corporations control. Economists predicted the decline all the way back in the 1950s, but their warnings were ignored. The bureaucracies that develop in large corporations are not known for their flexibility and their ability to quickly adapt to new uh, situations. Smaller companies are more adaptable, and they were a big part of Pittsburgh's renewal. Aided by lots of government funding, as well as help from philanthropic organizations, entrepreneurs created smaller startup industries in tech, the arts, and restoration of the city's historic resources. Pittsburgh really becomes a laboratory for what and how to save the past in a way that allows it to be integrated into the future. Some businesses here in West Virginia already are reinvesting and reimagining themselves, says Derek Scarborough at the Robert C. Byrd Institute in Huntington. Well, companies are definitely more and more interested in learning how they can broaden their, their base. The RCBI, as it's commonly known, opened 30 years ago with government funding. Here, business owners can use 3D printing and other machines to help revamp their business. A mining company based in Nicholas County uses the equipment to make mounts for outdoor cameras. They're selling them online and they have done extremely well with that. These are small glimmers of signs that entrepreneurs are moving towards retooling, but many are still reluctant, says Scarborough. Dr. Avi Mukherjee, interim provost at Marshall University, says he sees an increasing number of venture capitalists looking to Appalachia to invest. And there is a lot of interest in our part of the country in terms of what these ideas are and which ones can win. Mukherjee points to examples like App Harvest, which specializes in growing hydroponic vegetables on former strip mines and has attracted investors from all over the country. Or Ascend West Virginia, a program that offers virtual workers $12,000 to relocate to West Virginia. Over the next 20 years, Mukherjee expects West Virginia to see an increase in virtual jobs, things like cybersecurity and software engineering. Employers are already hiring in those sectors, says Natalie Roper, executive director for Generation West Virginia. Very often they have job openings and are struggling to get qualified applicants. When Roper's organization created a fellowship program to match qualified employees with employers, half of the jobs were in software development and most were virtual. That poses a problem in communities that lack high-speed broadband. West Virginia also falls behind in other aspects of infrastructure, from roads and bridges to a lack of basic necessities like food and water. 
Legal scholar Priya Bhaskaran worries that without these essentials in place, the state won't be able to keep people from fleeing. If we give them an employable skill and, you know, they don't have good, you know, safe water or like a decent road, of course they're going to take this skill and leave town. Bhaskaran has worked with communities across the country that are dealing with a hollowing out of jobs and people. She says leaders often neglect to ask people, what do they actually want? And what do they need? And when you turn that conversation internally, you know, you really see that, you know, what maybe what people really want is a grocery store. Buskerin asks, what if helping people get grocery stores or better water infrastructure is where economic development begins? What if instead of training people to be coders, we trained people to be wastewater engineers or water system operators, because there's a real need for that in West Virginia and greater Appalachia. Jim King is the president and chief executive of FAHI, a network of more than 50 nonprofits that fund about $330 million each year in projects throughout Appalachia. But he says much more investment is needed, and philanthropy and other institutions of wealth lag behind here. There is a historic disinvestment in West Virginia and Appalachia. And not only was the coal taken out, but the wealth, you know, the wealth went with it and other parts of the country benefited. King estimates that it would take nearly a billion dollars a year just to get West Virginia at the same economic playing field as the rest of the country. The coal industry here has also left behind thousands of acres of land in need of reclamation. Back in Germany, years of ongoing work to undo environmental damage and infrastructure decay have provided needed jobs, says Christian Wicca, a political historian. You have to imagine the rural region has is hollowed out like a Swiss cheese with lots of mines. And it's incredibly difficult to to organize a water system. At the same time, Wicca says Germany hasn't buried its coal and steel history. In fact, they've built museums about it. Artists have built steel statues on former mining sites that now attract millions of tourists a year. One might argue if you have a good job, the region is more livable than ever before. Back at the Museum of Mining, historian Stefan Moitra says that some of the older miners in West Germany do miss what mining was. But they are also very aware that times are changing. What many find important is that they can be sure that their kids and their grandkids can work and live without having to move away. Those words ring true here in Appalachia as well where many worry about sustaining the next generation. As in Germany, it will probably take many decades or even generations for Appalachia to get through this transition to the other side. And what that other side looks like is still unknown. But what's certain is that planning for that future will probably get us to a better outcome. In 1986, the city of Essen in West Germany closed its last mine. Now, 35 years later, this region of Germany has a labor participation rate of 71%, more than 25% higher than West Virginia's. If West Virginians decide to follow Germany's lead, it'll mean people from different industries and leadership roles agree on a plan. Most importantly, they'll have to figure out a way to support coal miners and their families in the years to come. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. But it's going down that new road Look at
There's a long-standing relationship between Appalachian coal fields and those in the Mountain West. During the anti-strip mining campaigns of the mid-2000s, concerned community members in both regions traveled to support each other's efforts. Those connections continue today. Reporter Katie Myers spoke with two indigenous activists, one in Appalachia and one in the Navajo Nation. They talked about the future of coal and the economic opportunities they want to see take root in the years ahead. Elaine Tanner lives on the side of a mountain in Letcher County, Kentucky. Like much of the area, the surrounding land was once mined for coal. When the mining company pulled out in the early 2000s, Tanner says they left behind a mess. They did a hollow fill, so we no longer have a headwater. Ponds meant to catch water from the changed landscape didn't do their job. Instead, water pours down the mountain, pushing mud toward her house. She's now making plans to relocate her home. Just right above that's where that oak tree fell. So that's where my cabin's going to go. <laughs> Across the country, Carol Davis is facing a different set of issues. Davis lives on the Navajo Nation, of which she's also an enrolled member. Davis works for Diné Citizens Against Ruining Our Environment, or Diné Care. The organization is based in the ancestral home of the Navajo or Diné and Hopi peoples around the Four Corners area of Arizona and New Mexico. That area is full of plateaus and high desert that have long been mined by Peabody Energy and other national mining corporations. That's actually the reason why our government was even established, because the federal government wanted to work with energy. They wanted to streamline a process to lease reservation lands for their use. The West is in a historic drought, and Davis worries the water requirements for coal burning and production have stressed the resources her community needs to survive. We were selling our water to Navajo Generating Station, and, you know, they were paying nothing to use our water. Meanwhile, our seeps and springs are drying out. One thing we all have in common, and it's the water. Though the Ohio Valley is water-rich, mining has disrupted mountain hydrology, increasing flood risk to mountain communities like Letcher County, Kentucky. Tanner, who is of Shawnee and Cherokee descent, says she feels a kinship with communities like Davis's. You have many of the same issues out west. There's a widespread pattern where an extraction economy leads to local hardship. Economists call it the resource curse. When an area is rich in natural resources, it tends to become dominated by outside powers who extract both resources and profits. These are indigenous lands. Colonialism walked in and took it away and chased the natives out. The Navajo Generating Station, a major coal-fired power plant, was shut down in 2019, along with the enormous mines that supplied its fuel. Though Davis applauds the shift, she says... They need resources to ensure an equitable future. These are sacrifices that people made for almost half a decade in the coal-impacted communities just so that the rest of Arizona, Nevada, and California could live with electricity. Tanner went to Washington, D.C. in October with indigenous activists from all over the country to demand the Biden administration fund energy transition. When we voted for them, we expected more. I think that would be an easy way to put it. They need to reinvest to help ensure that those communities will thrive in the future. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers.
Next, we're traveling back in time 100 years to when West Virginia was home to our nation's largest labor uprising. The Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921 was a watershed moment when co-workers decided their rights were worth fighting and even dying for. The armed insurrection pitted 10,000 coal miners against 3,000 heavily armed guards and state troopers. It was the largest armed conflict since the Civil War. As part of the uprising, there was an armed march of miners from Marmette to Mingo County. Last summer, us and them host Trey K retraced the path of those miners to learn more about what led to the conflict. At the Battle of Blair Mountain. The Battle of Blair Mountain is something of an enigma in modern history. A complex conflict that was the result of a number of social and economic forces that came to a head in West Virginia's coal country after World War I. The result was an armed march from Marmette to Mingo. To understand the complex history, we followed the path of the miners on their march to Mingo. And we brought along the foremost expert on this event, Professor Charles Keeney. How's it going? Good. Nice Trey to K. meet you. Trey K. So, uh, we're going on a little journey? I guess we are. <laughs> so it's on to Marmette, I suppose. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Following World War I, the economic forces at play in the West Virginia coal fields hit miners hard. They became pawns in a power battle between the coal industry and the gathering momentum of the union movement. So the coal industry in, in West Virginia felt it was crucial to their bottom line to keep the union out. The United Mine Workers, in order to keep their contracts in these other states, felt it was crucial to organize West Virginia to keep their organization afloat. The West Virginia coal fields were ripe for organization. Working conditions were hazardous, and the health of the miners was constantly at risk. Miners were paid with company currency, and workers could only spend their pay at company-owned stores. For over 20 years, mining families had protested, organized, and sometimes even gone to war with their employers in order to reform these conditions. In 1921, they had finally had enough. The last straw was the murder of one of their greatest allies, a chief of police in Mingo County named Sid Hatfield. That was on August 1st. And on August the 7th, they had this huge meeting at the Capitol with uh, five or 6,000 miners. They tried to petition the governor. Governor Morgan would not meet with the miners. That's when my great-grandfather famously came out and told the miners that the only way you can get your rights is with a high-powered rifle. Told them to go home and await the call to march. As it turns out, Chuck's great-grandfather was Frank Keeney, a central figure in West Virginia's union movement and a primary organizer of the March on Mingo. As Chuck Keeney and I drove along the route, followed by the miners, he described what must have been a spectacle. You had a, a front guard, like a vanguard, that was up front, and then, you know, the, the line of miners that were marching were stretched out for numerous miles. If you would have lived in this area and you were not joining the parade, um, you just saw, like, a long stream of miners just marching from Marmette to, uh, well, Blair Mountain. Yes, it was just a huge, continual stream. How many people? By the time you get to Blair, there's at least 10,000. There's probably, by the end of the battle, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000 involved. 
So where are we going next? We're going to Blair. We are not far. The Battle of Blair Mountain became inevitable. Every time conflict could have been avoided, outside forces pushed the miners and the coal company back toward violence. This is Route 17 we're on, by the way. And this was an actual road in 1921. Well, it was, <laughs> it was a dirt trail. It wasn't, it wasn't paved or anything. And there's a sign there that says the Battle of Blair Mountain. I might want to take a picture of that. Here we are at the southern crest of Blair Mountain. This is where we stopped. This is where the march ended, right here. When Chuck Keeney and I get to the top, we're standing at the high ground where the mine guards and the state troopers set up machine gun positions to attack the miners advancing up the steep slope of Blair Mountain. The fighting continued on through August 31st until September the 4th when federal troops arrived at Blair. So there was the battle. The United States Army, federal troops come here, and from what I understand, the miners lay down their arms. That's correct. Of course, many of them were World War I veterans, and their beef was not with the federal government. Uh, their beef was with the mine guards, with the state government. And so they, so they weren't anti-American, even though they were often painted as being such. Did the people who brought this, did they gain anything? Yeah, the, the initial aftermath was it got worse instead of getting better. But in some ways, the threat of more industrial violence is going to be a catalyst to encourage reform that is going to be taken on by the federal government the following decade. We talk about veterans of wars and talk about them sacrificing themselves for the freedoms that we enjoy. Well, what about uh, the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour work week, weekends, pensions, unemployment benefits? All of those things, they had to be fought for and they had to be bled for and in some cases died for. So that's why you want to remember what happened there. Americans need to understand the significance of labor history and unions in building America and turning America into a place where liberty can be enjoyed. Trey Kay, host of the podcast Us and Them, brought us that story. There's a breed of man that I know well Cause we are kith and kin From the pearly gates to the brink of hell You'll find these certain men Their youth flies fast And then alas Before their time they're old They've sacrificed All the time that's passed for coal Black gold. Now, you might notice that a lot of these coal stories are all about men. And that's because the coal industry is male-dominated. But there are women in coal mining. Oh, Lord. My mom threw a fit. <laughs> My dad said, you sure that's what you want to try? I said, yeah, Daddy, it is. We'll hear Anita Cecil McBride's story after the break. You're inside Appalachia. 
I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back, Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. So anytime we hear from someone in a coal mine, whether on the news or TV or the movies, it always seems to be a man. But there are women who work in coal. A 2020 survey showed that one out of 10 industry workers is female. That's why we wanted to bring you the story of Anita Cecil McBride. As a young woman, she followed in her father's footsteps and became an underground coal miner. Reporter Jessica Lilly visited with McBride to talk about her journey into the man's world of mining. Anita Cecil McBride is a self-proclaimed country girl. She lives up a steep winding road through a lush forest in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. Anita walks over smiling and greets me with a hug. (laughs) Well, it's nice to meet you. How are (laughs) you? It's a hot summer day when Cecil McBride settles into a plastic chair as she begins to tell the story of how she came to be a coal miner. Anita grew up in an old coal camp town in Wyoming County, West Virginia, called Coval. My dad was a a lifetime coal miner and supporter of the family. Her mom took care of the house, the kids, and her father. They wanted me to go to college, but I ended up getting pregnant right out of high school and, and having a son. Even working multiple jobs, it was hard to support her son. That got Anita thinking about a job she knew paid better, coal mining. Plus, I listened to the stories of my dad growing up, and I just thought, man, that's got to be so cool. Anita started her first job underground in July 2005. Eventually, she earned her black hat, or mining certificate, but when she told her parents... Oh, Lord, my mom threw a fit. (laughs) My dad said, you sure that's what you want to try? I said, yeah, Daddy, it is. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. If there's any woman alive that can do it, I believe you could. So she followed her father into a male-dominated industry. Not everyone thought she had it in her, but... He knew I could do it. He was really proud. Every time we went somewhere, he'd say, that's my daughter. She's coal miner. Underground mining was a new culture. Starting out was rough. I was probably the most nervous person that you could imagine. I was the only woman there. They they had to make me a shower room and and all that stuff. It, it was It was different. Some of the other miners knew her father, Verlin Cecil, or Big Dog, as they called him. Which helped. They was like, they say that was one tough (laughs) you-know-what. Being an underground coal miner was a big part of who her dad was. And it was starting to become a part of Anita's identity, too. She embraced certain aspects, like shedding cultural expectations for women to dress, speak, and even look a certain way. She also cherished the special closeness she felt with her fellow miners. It still makes her emotional to think about it. It's a relationship and a bond that a lot of people won't ever get to experience. And that's because my life's in your hands. Anita says the negative feedback she received because of her career choice came from the women in her community, not the men. It's very hard because they had a husband, you know, 
helping support their family. I didn't. And I even told one one time, she said, well, I don't know why you want to go underground with all of them men. I said, I'll stay home. You want to pay my bills, too. Still, sometimes Anita did have to deal with traditional divisions of labor underground. I tried my best not to ask for help. Um, I said, you know, if I'm going to go underground and make the same money that they're making, I need to really give it all I've got. Like her father, Anita was a dues-paying member of the United Mine Workers of America. She once traveled to Las Vegas for a rally to support legislation protecting miners' pensions. And in 2015, with the coal industry in sharp decline, it was the UMWA that helped Anita find another job. So along with her husband, another out-of-work coal miner, she got her CDL, or commercial driver's license, and switched to another male-dominated field, truck driving. So they sent us to school, paid for us to get trained and you know, even helped us find a job. But the only downside to that was it was over the road. So we were gone weeks and weeks at a time. And that was really hard. She misses being a miner, especially the bond she had with her crew. The relationship that I had with my guys, I wouldn't trade for the world. I love them and I miss them. Every one of them, even the hard-headed ones. Coal mining brought Anita and her father closer together, too. Every time we were together, we coal mined on the porch. You know, we'd sit and we'd talk and all kinds of things, tell different stories. Before I go, Anita shows me a wooden cabinet in her living room where she stores her keepsakes. This is my memory cabinet. I've got pictures, little coal figurines. Inside are portraits of her coal mining family their obituaries, and her father's harmonica. She proudly picks up a small figurine carved out of coal. Uh, My dad used to collect these for me. These are women coal miners. Everywhere he found them, he would pick one up. Now, the statues help to pick her up, in a way. She's no longer a miner, but the coal statues help her to remember the relationship she's built underground and with her father, Verland, before he died earlier this year. She also treasures memories from her new job in the cabinet. There's a glass, vase-like container stacked with unique rocks, seashells, and even a cork. Items that represent her new journey, driving a truck. All of them's from the states that we went through. That that was a bottle of uh, champagne we drank in California. There's even a piece of lava in the vase, and so far, only one piece of coal. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Virginia. Over the years, Coles maintained a presence, not just in West Virginia, but specifically on West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Mountain Stage. I bring this up both because I'm always looking for an excuse to play something from Mountain Stage, but also because we recently had a new host step into this role. Larry Gross is handing the mic over to Kathy Matea. She's a West Virginia native who's been making country music since the early 80s. She's a two-time Grammy Award winner. You might remember her hit 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. 
But Mateus also spent the last 15 years talking about coal, both its environmental impacts and also its cultural roots in Appalachia. So I spoke with her about the full-time hosting gig and why she decided to take it on. You know, it's challenging. It doesn't look like I should do this on paper, but it's. I think Mountain Stage is important. I think live music is important. I think West Virginia culture is important. And I was just like, yeah, I think I'd say yes. I think wow. I'd say yeah. So you are originally from Cross Lanes, West Virginia. And I'm curious how it feels getting to host a show that was founded and is now housed out of the Mountain State. Well, you know, I've spent my whole life being sort of a West Virginia native daughter, you know, like I moved to Nashville when I was 19. And then I I wound up getting to take this ride in the music business and touring all over the country and much of the rest of the world. And I didn't realize it at the time, but being a West Virginian is just an integral part of who I am. So I wound up talking about the place that I'm from and the place that made me. And you know, there's so much stereotypical stuff about hillbilly culture and to bring some of the soulfulness of that to people, the chance to break those stereotypes. Well, another thing I wanted to discuss, you have focused a lot of your work on coal. In 2008, you released an album called Coal. There were songs about black lung and the industry and how it affects small Appalachian families. Tell me a little bit about that work and um, why you gravitated toward it. So the Sago mine disaster happened. It was the first mine disaster that had happened in many, many years. They were going to cover the public funerals for all these miners, for the 12 of the 13 miners died. So they called and asked me if I would sing a song. So I called some musician friends and we recorded a performance, but we spent the day talking about this disaster and how we had all watched it. One of my friends who was playing said, well, Kathy, you know, isn't that what music is for? For helping us process emotions we don't even always understand. Uh, Because I was talking about just how much grief I had felt for these people I didn't know in a part of the state I'd never been. Both my grandfathers were coal miners, but my dad got out of the mines and he worked in the chemical plants. So I thought of coal as their story, not really my story. And so I was surprised that I felt so much about this. And I woke up the next day thinking, oh, maybe that's the record I should make. And then this conversation went on between me and the muse. I was like, don't make me sing about coal. Like, yeah, I think you should sing about coal. I know, but all the songs are in a minor key. How do you get out of that? Just do it. But everybody dies in the end, and it's really hard life and hard stories. I don't know if I can do this. My audience isn't going to like this. I don't think I want to do Yeah, I know. Just do it. Wow. <laughs> that was just, I could not get away from it. Through that process, I discovered that, you know, the biggest coal-fired electrical plant, the John Amos plant, I could see this, this, the steam from the steam towers from my parents' backyard. And coal was everywhere in my life. I just didn't see it because my dad wasn't coming home with coal dust all over him every night. His dad was, but my dad wasn't. And I realized it's part of all of our lives, whether we know it or not. I realized that I could sing a song from 1972 about strip mining and black water. 
and I could sing it now and nothing's changed. Wow. I mean, because it it changed your life and it's now shaped who you are today, do you think that will shape how you host Mountain Stage and that it could bring attention to the issue? I tell you, I just, I try to kind of ask the question about anything that's on my plate or in front of me to do or a decision I have to make. It's like, is this being of service in some way? And I I felt at the time, especially like, because I had made this record, because I was learning about it, I had the chance to help amplify the voice of people who were being affected by mountaintop removal and black lung and various other things that didn't have much of a voice. And so my agenda for Mountain Stage is Mountain Stage. But part of why Mountain Stage has such integrity is one of their policies is we don't tell people what to sing on our show. For me, keeping that spirit is my job. My job is not to bring any agenda into it, really, except the agenda of an open forum for music to be heard by all people. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting, Kathy, when you were telling me about what was going through your mind when you were asked to host Mountain Stage officially and, you know, you kind of had that voice in your mind saying, oh, it's going to be too much, but yet the other voice is like, no, you got to do it. It sounds similar to the voice when you were thinking about doing the the album Cole. Yes. That you were kind of unsure and that voice is like, no, you just, you got to do it. Is this kind of like your gut speaking? When I left college at WVU after my sophomore year to go do music, it was like, this does not make sense on paper. You know, my parents were depression kids. They grew up in coal mining towns. They were poor. They're like, get your degree. Go to Nashville, but get your degree. And I'm like, I know in my heart that if I don't go now, I'll never go. And if I don't go, I will ask myself for the rest of my life, what would have happened if I'd gone? So what I've learned to listen to in myself is like, I have the head voice that gives me all the reasons on paper why this doesn't make sense. But I've also learned that the decisions that are right for me come from my gut. Every time I've followed it, it's never steered me wrong. And over time, I've learned to trust that more and more. And that it might not make sense to me, but if I have a strong intuition about it, I need to go with that. That's so powerful. I think a lot of us, we are trying to learn that. I know I sure am. Driving on down that hotel road There's a two-hour of a tire's wine That was new Mountain Stage host Kathy Matea speaking with me. You can hear Mountain Stage episodes wherever you get your podcasts. To see the live show schedule, go to mountainstage.org. Got a back like ironwood, bent by the wind. Blood veins as blue as the coal. Blood veins as blue as the coal. Well, somebody said that's a strange tattoo you have on the side of your head. I said that's a blue mark left by the cold. Little more and I'd have been dead. Today we've heard a lot of stories about coal. I grew up outside the coal fields, but coal still had a big role in shaping my town. I lived in the railroad belt around Appalachian coal country, 
And when coal went down, so did the railroad. Caitlin, you grew up in Wyoming, the only state that produces more coal than West Virginia. Yeah, and to be honest, Wyoming's a huge state, and I didn't really realize until moving to West Virginia how much the coal industry played a role in Wyoming. And it's interesting seeing my home state grapple with coal declining. You know, I think where West Virginia is right now is potentially where the rest of the country could be in 20 years. Yeah, Appalachia often gets thought of as like being left behind, but in a lot of ways, it really represents the future. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Kathy Matea and Billy Ed Wheeler, as heard on Mountain Stage. We also heard music by Merle Travis and Genova. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Catherine Moore and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.